And we are now going to turn our attention uh, to that uh, region of the Middle East on Sunday, April 11th, a power failure that was reportedly caused by de deliberately planned explosion struck the uh, Natanz nuclear facility in Iran. Iranian officials are saying the attack was carried out uh, by Israel. Indeed, let us go to a Washington Post clip now. Iran has blamed Israel for what it called an act of terrorism on its Natanz nuclear facility, according to state TV. Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif vowed revenge on Monday, a day after local media reported the incident at the Natanz site, allegedly caused by a problem with the electrical distribution grid. A foreign ministry spokesman added that Iran would replace any damaged equipment, but that no contamination or casualties had been reported. The Natanz facility is the centerpiece of Iran's uranium enrichment program, one of several monitored by UN nuclear watchdog inspectors. Israel has in the past accused Iran of trying to build nuclear weapons to use against it. It has not formally commented on the incident. However, multiple Israeli media outlets have quoted unnamed sources claiming that its Mossad spy service carried out a successful sabotage operation at Natanz, potentially setting back enrichment work there by months. Iran and several world powers held what they described as constructive talks in Vienna last week, aimed at reviving the 2015 nuclear deal, which U.S. President Donald Trump abandoned three years ago, slapping sanctions on Tehran instead. Iran has gradually breached many restrictions imposed by the accord in response to those U.S. sanctions. The Natanz incident came shortly after Iran, which says its nuclear program is purely for peaceful purposes, began using new and advanced enrichment centrifuges at the facility. A senior U.S. administration official said Washington had no involvement. Right, and officials, uh, Iranian officials, uh, added that the large explosion completely destroyed the independent and heavily protected internal power system that supplies the underground uh, centrifuges that enrich uranium. And uh, Ali Akbar Salehi, the head of Iran's Atomic Energy Organization, uh, characterized the blackout as an act of nuclear terrorism. And as we said earlier, this attack comes amid efforts by the Biden administration and Iran President Hassan Rouhani to salvage the 2015 nuclear uh, power deal, a deal that is very much opposed uh, by Israel. And by the way, the attack happened the same morning that the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III was visiting um, Israel. And also on Wednesday, April 7th, an Iranian cargo ship anchored for years off the Red Sea off Yemen was attacked in a mine blast, this according to the Associated uh, Press. And that attack is also um, being uh, put on Israel. So helping us to understand uh, all of what is going on, we're delighted to welcome back to Sojourner Truth Phyllis Bennis, who directs the new internationalism project at the Institute for Policy Studies, focusing on U.S., Middle East, and war policy. She also serves on the board of Jewish Voice for Peace, and her most recent books include Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict. Phyllis Bennis, welcome back. Great to be with you, Margaret. 
Okay, so <laughs> there's a, a, a bit to unpack here. Um, yeah. Before we go into uh, any change that you might have observed in the policy uh, towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but the Biden administration in contrast with the Trump administration, let us talk a bit about the um, uh, Iran and the attack on this facility and whether your view is if it is a, a really an attempt to undermine any talks and negotiations between the United States and Iran. Yeah, well, actually, those two issues, Israel-Palestine and Iran, uh, are very linked. Um, what we're looking at yes. here, there is no question that this was designed specifically to undermine the possibility of an Iran deal. Israel's fear, to the degree that there is fear that goes beyond Benjamin Netanyahu's fear about losing the next election and ending up in jail, which is a big part of what motivates him. But beyond that, the, the real fear is not that there could someday in the future be a, an Iranian nuclear bomb, but that there could be an Iranian nuclear deal, which would lead, among other things, to the possibility of the U.S. diminishing or even pulling out to large degrees its military presence in the region that backs up Israel and its Arab allies, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, etc. Uh, there's a fear that that could lead to fewer arms being sent to the region by the United States, fewer uh, warships, fewer troops, etc. That's the real fear here that they're trying to avoid. So the effort to undermine the talks is very clearly the timing here. We had the, the attack on the first day of the talks last Thursday with the attack on the uh, the attack on an Israeli sh uh, sorry on an Iranian ship presumably by Israel uh, in the Red Sea and then this time right on the eve of the talks that are supposed to be resuming tomorrow uh, hopefully they still will go forward uh, but with the additional sort of insult to the United States of doing it exactly on the day as you mentioned that, uh, General Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, is in Israel expressing uh, explicitly his, quote, personal pledge to strengthening Israel's security and ensuring Israel's qualitative military edge. He gave two press conferences, two, two public statements, and he never said the word Iran, uh, despite knowing about the attack that had happened early that morning. So this, it's, it's the kind of insult that Netanyahu consistently launched against President Obama in the, in the run-up to the signing of the Iran nuclear deal back in 2015, uh, where there were, there were really racist approaches to Obama from Netanyahu and a lot of efforts to kind of undermine uh, Obama's standing in the United States, which didn't completely succeed but did make it more difficult for Obama to get congressional support uh, for the Iran nuclear deal back then, back in, in 2015. So what we're looking at now, the big difference here, is that this is not just assumptions that Israel was involved. There are direct statements from uh, former and, in, in some cases, current unnamed and named former uh, top intelligence officials in Israel saying, yeah, we did it, get over it. You know, it's a very in-your-face kind of uh, uh, kind of approach here. And that is different than in the past where they have refused to, cons to confirm or deny. Uh, the former Mossad chief, uh, Ephraim Halavi, 
told the BBC yesterday in a in a name you know he was named it was on the BBC World Radio, and he said that he's a supporter of the Iran nuclear deal and he disagrees with the Israeli attack, making it clear that in his view there was no question, <clears throat> excuse me, that it was indeed uh, an Israeli attack. The Washington Post uh, quotes Yoel Guzansky, who was a former head of the Iran desk at at Israel's National Security Council, uh, and he talks about. Uh, the media reports and said it's clearly uh, a move to unofficially claim responsibility by giving all of these reports to the Israeli media. Uh, there's another, the New York Times quotes an unnamed Israeli intelligence official who describes in great detail exactly how the attack was allegedly carried out. So this time around, there is no question that Israel either did it, or if they didn't, they looked at it and said, wow, we should claim credit for that because that will really undermine the U.S. position in the talks. And the possibility that Israel might be held accountable by the United States diplomatically for undermining this so important diplomatic effort to get back into the Iran nuclear deal, they clearly were not afraid of that at all. Doing it on the morning of General Austin's uh, visit means there was no fear that he was going to pack up and go home and say, I can't meet with you under these circumstances, we'll be in touch later, uh, that he didn't even mention it during his talks. They were anticipating that there would be exactly that kind of, uh, uh, of, of response. We understand that there's going to be a meeting today of a committee that was first put together uh, during the Obama presidency between the U.S. and Israel at the level of national security advisors, be- the the two national security advisors in Tel Aviv and in Washington, who would meet to, as they put it, avoid surprises on the question of how to deal with Iran and Iran's nuclear power program. In this case, they haven't met now for, for many months, but they're about to meet again today to talk, presumably, about avoiding surprises. Now, we don't know whether the attack uh, on the Natanz nuclear plant carried out by Israel, or claimed at least by Israel, uh, was in fact a surprise for the United States. The U.S. may have known about it. They say they have not. And it is significant that the U.S. is denying any connection, and that so far the Iranians are focusing their anger and their demand for accountability on Israel. They're not saying this was done by the U.S. and Israel. They're accepting the Israeli claims, the unofficial claims of responsibility, and saying this, this is something we have to deal with with Israel. Um, we'll see tomorrow whether the Iranian diplomatic team uh, shows up for the, the continuation of the talks in Vienna. Uh, there's been no indication so far that they will not. Uh, hopefully they will, but of course it will make the possibility of a return to the nuclear deal much more difficult, uh, having had the uh, the, the Iranians have to face this, uh, this very serious attack on their nuclear power uh, plant, which also, of course, means that there will be inevitably some kind of an internal struggle within Iran's intelligence agencies, military agencies, all those who are charged with protecting this very important plant. They're going to have to blame someone, and that's destabilizing, obviously, to, to any government. And, and right now, in the run-up to elections in Iran that are scheduled for June, that's the last thing that Iran needs to be worrying about. So it's going to make the talks 
much more difficult. It is interesting that we may see a bit more of a divide than we've seen already between the United States and its allies in the nuclear deal. The so-called P5 plus 1 is now without the United States, of course, since it was the United States that abandoned the deal. The other countries in the deal, China, Russia, France, Britain, Germany, uh, as well as the European Union as a whole, they are still meeting with Iran directly, and then there is this uh, shuttle diplomacy going on between those meetings and the United States delegation led by Rob Malley uh, in, in Vienna. But we're, we've been seeing a very distinct divide between the position of the United States, uh, certainly during the, the Trump years, but it has not changed very much. We've seen no lifting of the uh, the, the sanctions that Trump imposed, not just the reimposed nuclear sanctions, but several hundred new kinds of sanctions that were imposed uh, that have just crippled the Iranian economy. And of course, in the context of the, of the pandemic, of the, the corona pandemic, uh, it's been horrific for ordinary Iranians, for families, to get medication, to be able to treat their loved ones, to get access to hospitals, Medicines have been unavailable. Uh, food prices have, have skyrocketed. Inflation has gone through the roof. So the lives of ordinary Iranians have been hurt terribly by these sanctions, whereas they've done little to change Iranian decision-making about its nuclear power plants. Uh, so it's a very complicated uh, reality right now, and the, the negotiations going on in Vienna are very, very delicate. This could really undermine the potential for getting back into the deal. The issue, of course, in Vienna, we have a situation where it was the United States that abandoned the deal and said, we are no longer bound by it. We're reimposing these uh, sanctions that were linked to Iran's earlier nuclear power activities, and we're going to impose a bunch of new sanctions in this so-called maximum pressure campaign. Well, as we know, that didn't work. Uh, Iran turned to the other signatories, the, the Europeans, the Chinese, the, the Russians, and said, look, the U.S. is out. We're still in the deal. You're still in the deal. You have the responsibility for making up for what the U.S. has stolen from us from abandoning this deal. And if you can make it possible for us to not face these new sanctions, we'll stick with the deal. And they waited for months, and the, the Europeans in particular said they would create a new system for Iran to engage with the international community, avoiding the U.S. sanctions. But they were never able to do it, whether it was a matter of lacking political will or whether the U.S. pressure was simply too strong is a, is a complicated question. But they weren't able to do it. And as a result, Iran said, okay, we're going to start leaving certain obligations behind. We're going to extend our uh, uranium enrichment from what they had been doing legally at 3.5% up to uh, at 1.20%, which was a significant uh, violation. And they said, we're doing all this, but all of this can be reversed in a day. All of these moves that we are making that go outside the bounds of the nuclear deal, we're prepared to rescind them because we want the U.S. to come back into the deal. The U.S. position, despite that, is... Iran has to blink first, as if Iran was responsible for the, the, the problems of 
the U.S. having left the deal. So it's a very unrealistic uh, position. And one of the things that we don't know yet is how this is going to play out in the talks in uh, in in uh, in Vienna, whether they will be able to go forward, whether this is something that will lead to a significant delay in the talks. That could be very dangerous as well because of the elections that are coming forward. And with elections scheduled for June, by early May, campaigning in Iran is going to be at a fierce level, and it's going to be very difficult at that point for anyone affiliated with the, the nuclear deal to advocate continuing talks and continuing to try to negotiate with the United States when the sanctions are still in place. Because so far, the Biden administration has done nothing to remove any of these extra sanctions that have been imposed. So it's a very, very complicated uh, um, situation that now faces Rob Malley and his team as they arrive back in Vienna for the talks tomorrow morning. Absolutely. And we can depend on you, Phyllis Bennis, for really breaking it down in such a comprehensive and understanding way. So we hope to call on you again, though, because the next few days are going to be critical with all of this. So we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so very much, Phyllis Bennis. Thank you, Margaret. It's always a pleasure.